Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. All right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. We shall begin. I would invite everyone to please turn to Romans chapter 1. I'll give you 10 seconds. And then we'll pray. Let's pray. Precious Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here right here, right now to study your word. And as always, we yield before you divine spirit and we entreat you for your grace to open the windows of understanding of our minds, to open our eyes that we may see you clearly and to implant and deposit your word deep within our hearts that we will not only know your truth in Romans with our minds to understand it, but we will live it with affections and emotions in our everyday lives. We yield before you, divine teacher, knowing that you are the only true teacher of your word, and ask you to bless us with your presence here today this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So we'll continue the latter part of our introduction to the book of Romans before we actually dive into the exposition of the verses themselves. So the first question we're going to ask this morning is, now that we know what the book of Romans is, an epistle written to the church in Rome, the next question is, why did Paul write Romans? Why did Paul write Romans? And this is not a question we have to speculate about because Paul tells us in Romans why he wrote Romans. In chapter 1, verses 11 to 12, this is what he writes. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So why did the Apostle Paul write Romans? He wrote it to establish the saints in the church in Rome. This word establish comes from a root in Greek that means to solidify, to plant, or to fix down. So Paul writes the epistle to the Romans in order to plant, to fix down, to solidify all of the members in the church at Rome. What is Paul planting and solidifying the people in? The truth of the word of God. Now let's take a step back because this gives us a very acute insight into what the church of God is supposed to do. Someone tell me, the church does many things, but the primary, number one, main thing that the church of God is supposed to do is what? Amen. To teach about Jesus. To teach about God so that people will be established. They will be firmly planted. They will be rooted because as people grow 
as they mature, as they grow from young children to uh, little children to young men to fathers, they become more and more mature in their faith, their roots grow, they have a firmer anchor, and now they will not what? They will not waver between opinions and be susceptible to changing tides of doctrine. The book of Ephesians is the great book on ecclesiology, or what the church is supposed to do in the New Testament. But even though there are many offices, there are different spiritual gifts, everyone's going to serve a different purpose in the body of Christ, the main thing the church is supposed to do is to establish the saints. Because here's the thing. Let's, let's make this real plain. Making a baby is easy. Making a baby is easy. Making, not having, making a baby is easy. I'm not a woman, but I've seen two natural childbirths. Delivering the baby is hard. But what's even harder is the decades, is the sleepless nights, is the years upon years upon years upon years of nurturing that young baby from infancy to adulthood. What's my point? We're going to evangelize. We're going to go on missions. We're going to preach Christ. We're going to teach the Bible. But that's only step one. That's just nourishing and bringing the baby into the world. Now the hard part kicks in where you're going to raise that child from infancy to adulthood. So this is a key point. We haven't even dug into scriptures yet, but the main thing the church is supposed to do is to preach and teach sound doctrine, to establish saints. So Paul is writing Romans to establish the church. Good. So conversion is not the, is not the end of a Christian's life. It's only the beginning. You, get, you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, yea and amen, now the work begins. Now the day-to-day minutia of training that person up, that's when the real work begins. This also tells us as far as missions are concerned in general, it is perfectly biblical to go across Queens, to grow across Brooklyn, to grow across America, to go to the other side of the world to evangelize But that's only the first step. The ultimate goal now of missions, of evangelism, is to now incorporate that new believer into the body of Christ and to establish them. It's crucially important to understand the idea that being established, that growing in the faith, is an active process that all Christians undergo. But there are different degrees of sanctification. There are different degrees of maturity and growth if you were to survey all Christians around the world at one time because people are in different stages in development. But I say all that to say the only individual who can boldly proclaim Christ, the only person, for example, who will die for the truth or who will be a bold, radical agent for the purposes of God is someone who is established, is someone who not only knows Christ, but trusts Christ holds the deed to their heart. They know what they believe and why they believe it. And the more firmly established a believer is, the more useful they can now be to God and to God's people. Okay.
So what did Paul actually establish in the epistle to the Romans? What is the epistle's teaching? And we've already discussed or touched upon that idea already. The main idea of the epistle to the Romans is the gospel. It's telling everyone what God has already done through Jesus Christ. You have an introduction to Romans and you have a conclusion. The introduction is chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The conclusion is chapter 15, verses 14 to 16. And in both of those bookends, the start and the finish, Paul is talking about the gospel. So everything in between adds content and value to that message. There are many different Bible scholars and theologians who will develop all these fancy schemes as to how how to divide up the book of Romans. We're going to keep it very simple. Chapters 1 to 11 is the high heavenly theological stuff. It's learning about God, learning about Christ, learning about sanctification, learning about justification, learning about all this high heavenly knowledge. And then verses 12 to 16 is all the practical stuff. So Paul basically says in chapters 1 to 11, this is who God is, this is what God has done. Then chapter 12 begins by him saying, therefore. And that's a big therefore, because Paul's essentially saying, therefore, now that you know everything that God has done, this is how that applies to your life. This is how that's actually relevant to how you go about everyday living because knowing who God is and what he has done, when you actually live that and believe that, it's going to have practical, palpable effects in everyday life. And he tells us how the gospel relates to who we are, how we see ourselves, how that interacts in secular society with governments, and how we treat and interact with other individuals. And what Paul ends up telling us in the epistle to the Romans is that neither the Gentile works of nature nor the Jewish law, none of that is the good news. There's only one gospel, and it is the good news of God through Jesus Christ, his son. Now, when we hear the gospel, what's the only biblical appropriate response to the gospel? Someone tell me. It's a very simple answer. Amen. Amen, and we say amen because we believe. believe. Right. So the only legitimate biblical response to the gospel is to believe. That's kind of the point. Because Paul's saying the gospel is good news because this is what God has already done. So someone who truly understands the gospel now does not say, what can I now do? Or what works may I now contribute to be saved? The only appropriate response is, I can never do better than what Christ has already done, and therefore I respond with faith. I respond with belief. Because Romans tells us that without faith, without trusting in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're not okay. We don't have an okay relationship with God, and the result is condemnation. But with faith, by trusting in what God has already done, we are now declared okay. We are now declared righteous. We are therefore justified, or we are told, you're okay, as a function of faith and faith alone. Romans 3, 23 to 24. 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the big theme of the book of Romans... The big overall idea is the gospel. Only appropriate response is faith. The Apostle Paul used to be a man called Saul, who spent a very, very long time killing and murdering Christians. He was a terrorist, he was a murderer, he was an arch enemy. Of the church of God. Now let's try to understand what God is communicating to us in Romans. If there was anyone who would not be okay in the eyes of God as a function of what he did, it would be Paul, right? It would be the guy who used to be Saul because he, would, he made a career of working against Christ, of murdering Christians. So that guy, the man who used to be Saul, is now saying the way that we're declared righteous with God is you have to believe. That actually means something now coming from the man who used to be Saul. It actually means something that the way we are declared to be okay is we simply believe. So God can now look at Paul and not judge him based on who he is and not judge him based upon what he has done. So when Paul, when the guy who used to murder Christians for a living tells us the way we're declared righteous with God is by believing, not only do the words mean something, but the, the person delivering the message is exactly the person who shouldn't be okay. But as long as we believe, church, then we are declared righteous, we are justified in the eyes of God. And the beauty of that, just like the Apostle Paul is communicating to us, regardless of who we were or regardless of what we have done, if God is the one who justifies us, who can condemn us? And the answer is no one. Good. So that concludes the introduction to the book of Romans. Now we'll dive into the scriptures itself. So Romans chapter 1, verse 1. The text begins, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Let's stop. So the epistle to the Romans begins by naming its author, Paul. So who was Paul? It's a great place to start because that's how Romans starts. Paul, it's a miracle that Paul is Paul. It's a miracle that Paul is writing the epistle to the Romans cognizant of who Paul used to be. Once again, the man called Saul who used to murder Christians. The man called Paul was the single most important teacher in the history of all of Christianity after Jesus Christ. The man called Paul 
wrote approximately, roughly, half of the New Testament. Without Paul, wouldn't have Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, Epistles of the Thessalonians. Paul was the single greatest missionary in the history of the Christian church. When we step back now and analyze where Paul went in the known world at the time, he, by foot and by sea, traveled approximately 10,000 miles. And he was the one responsible for planting the seed in a myriad of churches all over what was then the modern world, which will lay the foundation that would subsequently be the modern Christian church. Paul, in a secular sense, was also someone who was very well established. He was a citizen of Tarsus, Acts 21:39, which is in modern-day Turkey. And that's important because... As a function of him being born in Tarsus, that meant he was a Roman citizen. And now he had certain rights and privileges that an ordinary Jew would not. Tarsus was also the place where there was a well-renowned Greek university, meaning what? Paul was not only smart and intelligent, he was a master in rhetoric, but he was also very well educated. His mind was not empty. His mind, in fact, was very, very full. And that's important because as a Roman citizen and someone who had a robust secular education, guess who Paul could communicate beautifully now with? Romans, Greeks, everybody, everywhere. And this is an important point. When Paul preaches his sermon on Mars Hill, do you know what he does? He quotes Greek poets. And I say all that to say, at some point in modern Christendom, people develop the idea, the zany idea, that some, in some way, shape, or form, education is bad. Or getting secular knowledge is a bad idea. And I say that is not the case because the Bible tells us education is in fact neutral. Intelligence is neutral. Obtaining knowledge of the world is neutral. What makes it either righteous or malicious is how we now use that knowledge. You can become a medical doctor, you can be a lawyer, you can be a business person, and you can use all that knowledge to destroy and hurt people, or you can now effectively engage those talents and abilities that were given to you by God for the, for the glory of God and for the benefit of his people. So if anything, the single greatest teacher, the single greatest missionary in the history of the church tells us that getting education and being knowledgeable about stuff in general is in fact a very, very good thing. That in fact equips you to be more useful to God and to his people. But not only that, Paul was also an individual who had a robust religious education. What Acts 22.3 tells us is that Paul studied under the rabbi Gamaliel, and he was also the son of a Pharisee. In plain English, that means Paul not only went to what would be the equivalent of seminary today, he went not only to the equivalent of Bible college, but he was trained by the best of the best theologians of the day. And 
Not only was Paul the son of a Pharisee, he was a Pharisee himself. Now, there is a new term that we have to define. So someone please tell me, what's a Pharisee? Say it again. Someone versed in the scriptures. We're going to expound upon the history of the Pharisees in a later verse. But in plain language, the Pharisees 2,000 years ago were, were the most religious folk anybody knew everywhere. They were obsessed with rules. They were obsessed with legalism. They were obsessed with immersing themselves in the scripture to follow God's law to down to the, the dot and the tittle. And they were so obsessed with God's word and fulfilling legal requirements, they ended up separating themselves not only from God, but from God's people as well. But the key thing we have to appreciate now is that Paul, being a Pharisee, in light of the fact that he was using his Bible knowledge originally in an incorrect way, of, I dare say, of there were probably few Jews on the planet at that time that knew their scriptures better than Paul. Meaning he had a great Bible education, he was just applying it in the wrong way. And then what happens? Jesus finds him one day and he swings the pendulum. Now he begins using his servant to use all that Bible wisdom and knowledge in God-exalting ways. Good. So Paul had a robust secular education. He was a Roman, uh, lived in a town that had a great Greek university. He also had a robust religious education, which tells us what? That Paul was on the border of two worlds. He was standing on the border of a Roman and Greek world, and he was also standing on the border of a Jewish world. Who else in the Bible does that sound like? I see the wheels turning. The point I'm going for is this, is that people who are immersed in multiple spheres, God can use in magnificent ways. There is a huge correlation between the man God used the most in the New Testament, Paul, and the man God used the most... Yes, the man God used the most to lay the foundation of his law in the Old Testament, Moses. Who was Moses? He was fully a Hebrew, fully a Jew, yet fully Egyptian in the same person. Because remember, Moses was raised under Pharaoh, meaning he had the best secular pagan education of the day. Who is now Moses? He now serves as a mediator between God and God's people, a mediator to deliver God's people out of Egyptian bondage. And he can now use all that wisdom and knowledge to be a shepherd in the wilderness. Fast forward now to Paul, you have a fully uh, Roman and a fully uh, Pharisee Jew in one person who can now do what? He can now effectively defend the Christian faith against the Jews and be a wonderful missionary to the secular world. Because remember, our Christian faith is an extension, is a fulfillment of Judaism. 
right? Christianity wasn't a new religion that popped on the scene that was disconnected from everything from the beginning. The foundation, the roots of Christianity comes from Judaism, which is why Paul, whenever he went to the city, a, a new city, the first group of folks he would always speak to are Jews in the synagogue, reasoning with them from the scriptures. And the last point I'll make about the duality of Paul is this, is that God always tends to use people who can do and are doing. God always tends to use people who can do and are doing. I think it was John MacArthur who once said, one of the greatest gifts that we can ever offer God is availability being ready and being available, ready to act. We may not have a specific calling right here, right now, but the sheer fact that we are prepared and available now opens the door above us for God to use us. So now we're going to dissect this first verse. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called it as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Here's what the first verse does. Paul begins by saying, Paul, he tells us who he is. And in the first verse, he tells us three things. He tells us what he is. So the first verse of Romans, we're told he's a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He's called as an apostle, and he's set apart for the gospel of God. So Paul tells us who his master is, Christ Jesus, He tells us what his office is, called as an apostle, and he tells us what his purpose is, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, we don't have much time left, so I'm not going to dive into this too quickly, and we'll save it for next week. Paul begins identifying himself as a bondservant, as a slave of Christ Jesus. Paul could have began his letter by saying, I'm the Reverend Dr. Paul. He could have said, here are all of my degrees. He could have said, I'm a Roman, had a great Greek education, and I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I trained under one of the best rabbis of this day. But the first thing that Paul identifies himself as when he answers the question, what am I? He calls himself a bondservant, a slave of Christ Jesus. He then takes that broad identifier and then narrows it. Because you and I, everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ, we are all bondservants of Christ Jesus. So in a sense... Everyone here today that has faith in the Messiah, we are all the same as Paul, bond servants of Christ Jesus. But now Paul narrows it down. He's not only that, he's called it as an apostle with a specific purpose of, of preaching and teaching the gospel of God. So the only point that I'll leave uh, everyone with today is this, is that everyone in and of the church back then, here and now, is a bondservant, is called to be a slave of Jesus Christ, and that unifying feature is what brings all of us together. Like Paul, there are going to be particular individuals who will be called to a specific office and have a specific purpose. But in the body of Christ, there's both a sameness 
there's both a unity and there's also a distinction in that, as members of the same body, we're all a member of Christ. We're all unified in that uh, one unit, but some person, some people may be an elbow, some may be a finger, some may be a, a toe, some may be a stomach. So there's distinction in that unity, but at the end of the day, we are all one and the same. So when the book of Ephesians, for example, talks about one people with one heart and one mind, that does not mean we're all evangelists. That does not mean we're all teachers. That does not mean we're all apostles. That means we're all a part of one body, but in that body, there's going to be distinction as a function of office and purpose. Because Paul is, number one, a bondservant, but then more specifically, he's called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. So there's a natural break here, so I'll stop and leave the rest for next week. Before we close in prayer, are there any questions? Um, should every Christian ask uh, what their specific purpose in, in the body is? So the question is, should every Christian ask God what their specific calling in the body of Christ is? And the answer is yes. Because no Christian is ever called to be a spectator, right? Every Christian is called to do something. So in 1 John 3.18, the Apostle John tells us that we are to love not just in words, but in deed and truth. So spectating actually is a manifestation of deficient love. Meaning, if you, Sister Linda, if Brother Chad, if anyone is able to do anything, if you have a pulse, if you can walk, if you can speak, that means you can do something. And real biblical love now means you say, I love my Lord and Savior. Now how can I help to edify his people? How can I serve in his body by presenting myself being available and now doing something? So the short answer to your question is yes. Good, let's pray. Thank you, O Lord, for your word. Thank you for the graciousness of your revelation to us. We pray, Divine Spirit, that as you've opened our ears to hear your word today, that you implant it deep in our hearts and minds, that we may nourish and meditate on your gracious and nourishing word throughout the week. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that as we go home and each and every day read through the book of Romans, you open the windows of understanding in our hearts and our minds that we will not only hear words, but appropriate your truth and live the richness and depth of your revelation to us found in your inerrant, inspired word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.